0: when you know you are old, or certainly older, when you get in your car with your kids and they say, Dad, why do you always have the radio on NPR? (laughs) And I say, (laughs) see, Dennis, you know what I'm talking, I know, Uh, I say, it's not always on NPR, you know, it's on there because, uh, and this is the truth, because you know, sometimes I do listen to NPR and there's a story, they'll tell a story, you know, This American Life or something, you know, some of you listen to this, it's like these stories, these odd, strange stories begin and, and I find myself hooked, you know, into the story. I'm, I'm curious and it keeps, I keep it on and there are times, absolutely, when I get where I'm going, park, and rather than get out and go in where I'm going, I stay in the car and I'm going to listen until this story resolves. Now, this happened within the last year uh, when there was this interview with a lady who was a, a, a city leader in this town in, um, I want to say it was Ireland, I think it was uh, no, maybe Northern Ireland, and they were interviewing her because she had been working with the IDA for many, many years to get a specific IDA designation for this tiny, nondescript village, and lo and behold, they got the designation, and this spot on the planet that was nowhere became a must-visit location for many people across the globe. And if you're wondering, well, what's the IDA and why does that designation matter? Well, the IDA is the International Dark Sky Association. And these are the people who scour the planet... And they're looking for those spots on the planet where at night it is as dark as it was in the beginning. Now you think about this, how rare those places are. I mean, population growth, et cetera, and light pollution that comes along with where we go and keep the lights on at night. Uh, They're extremely rare. In fact, there are only two spots in the United States that according to the Bortle Dark Sky Meter it's like the Richter scale for earthquakes. You've got the Bortle Dark Sky Index for dark skyness. There are only two places that get the category, and this is a rating, pristinely dark. Pristinely dark. Just two in the United States and a handful around the globe. When you stand in these spots, it's so dark. I quote, you can see the marbled structure of the Milky Way faint particle bands running east and west, and even the Milky Way's nucleus, you know, with naked eye. It's it's a paradox, and, and you guys know that, it's a paradox we readily know, but we rarely ponder. There are some things that are most clearly seen in the dark. It's an oxymoron of sorts, isn't it? I'm going to call it this, the clarity of darkness. And I want to suggest it's absolutely essential to faith, and it's a part of the faith story even as we see it in Abram's life. Today we're going to continue our walk through this study of Abram, Genesis 12 to 25. I'm going to pick up in chapter 15, the text is actually going to take us to a Pristinely dark spot. And in that place, this is most important. Often, only in that place do we see what really matters most clearly. Now, why would I say that? I'd say it because the text is about God. Confirming that his promises are trustworthy. Uh, I, I think we would all agree. I'm going to connect it to this why it matters. I would suggest, and I think we'd agree, that our hope, how much hope we live with, is actually tied to how convinced we are that God's promises are true and trustworthy and they're going to come true that he's going to deliver on the promises so so our level of hope rises or falls with our level of assurance in God's promises I think when we actually understand this text I don't think it's a go-to text for many of us now I don't think but I think when we understand it it can become our go-to text when our faith is wobbling when 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 trust our trust is 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 shaky, we can go here. Open to Genesis chapter fifteen, if you have your Bibles. Um, Michael took us last week through Genesis fifteen one through six. It is the f- it was the first of two confirmations. So the whole chapter is two confirmations. The first confirmation, God is is saying to Abram that his that God's promises are trustworthy. You remember that Abram was actually complaining. I'm going to say something about that in a moment. He was actually complaining to God. You remember? remember He said, God, you you promised many descendants through me. I have no kids. He's complaining to God. And God takes Abram by the hand, as Michael said, walks him out. And, And think about this, walks him out and says, Abram, look up into the night sky. Can you count the stars? No. That's how many descendants are going to come through you. And you remember Michael said, not, not through your clan, like your, 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 the, the group you're leading, through your loins. <laughs> They're going to have your DNA from your body, Abram. No doubt Abram was looking up into a pristinely dark night sky. Now we're going to pick up the second confirmation. So God's going to say again, I want to tell you my word is trustworthy. And if you read ahead, which by the way, I hope you do. I mean, you know, you, know where, you know what we're going to be in all summer until October, Genesis 12 to 25. Read ahead. Read in front of this. And if you, if you have, here's what you'll note. What I'm getting ready to read is spooky dark. It's weird. It's Terrible. It, it, it is, when you read it, if you didn't know better, you'd, I, I would go, that's a bad dream. And the truth is, mm, it's actually a dream. We would do well to revisit over and over and over again. Let me tell you how the, the back end of this unfolds. It's, it, it, we're going to connect three interconnected parts. It's going to go preparation, promise, and assurance. Okay, just for those of outline people in your mind's eye, seven through eleven, preparation, seven through eleven. And we're going to take that section promise, which is going to take us from twelve to sixteen. And then the back end of this lands with assurance. That's going to be seventeen to twenty-one. Follow along in your Bibles. We'll read it together. Follow along as I read it and, and, and you'll follow along. Verses seven through eleven. This is God's word to you and to me on this. Lord's Day. I'm actually going to grab verse 6 because it ties us back to where we were. Uh, then he, Abram, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteous, as Michael covered that last week. It continues, And he, God, verse 7, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Now, I just want to say here, that phrase is foreshadowing the very words God is going to say to the nation of Israel when he says in Exodus, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You see, he's foreshadowing the faithfulness of God, even in those words. Verse 8, he said, this is Abram, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. We'll stop there. Last week, speaking of the questions that Abram asked of God, you know, how do I know? Why didn't you? What are you going to do? You didn't give me? That, that, that we, we noted that those were biblical, the category is biblical complaints, that these questions and these complaints didn't arise from a heart that didn't trust God. It's, it's so important that we recognize that, that these, these arose from, from Abram's faith. Verse 6, is Abram a man of faith? Verse 6 settles that question forever, forever. He's a man of faith. But these questions are actually complaints, and, and when we think of them, uh, they're very different than what we think of when we complain in our day, right? So, so in, in our day, when we think complaint, uh, it, it is generally self-centered. It's, it's generally self-centered. It's what I, I don't get, what I don't like can't believe I just paid 48 bucks for that lunch and I got that service. It's that complaint. It's every time I call AT&T. You know, it's that sense of complaint. Did I mention AT&T? Okay. It's that complaint, you know, that just drives you crazy. That's like, my cell service and I don't have sales service, blah, blah, blah. Self-centered. Well, this complaint, a biblical complaint, totally different. I want to mention this, revisit this for a moment, that a biblical complaint arises out of a heart of faith. Lord, what do you mean? How does a complaint arise out of a heart of faith? Well, I've had to catch myself many times with my kids where I have just totally blown it when they uh, complain. Now, Those of us who are parents know, and kids in the room, we know, you know, kids do complain. We complain, just like they do. But oftentimes our children kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just complaining about something, right? But I want to suggest that that your kids, mine, often have complaints of faith. See, oftentimes, there are times I've told my kids, I've made a promise. I promise to do this, I'm going to do it by this time. And the truth is, I don't do it. And my kids say, Dad, you promise? They don't even say you promise, they just complain. Dad, why haven't you? And whatever, and in my worst moments, I'm defensive. You know, and I've done this recently, and I'm just, you know, you know I'm defensive. I'll just leave it at that. But in my better moments, I, I have to stop and say, is this, a, is this a complaint of faith? In other words, the reason they're bringing this to me is they believed it. When I promised it, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And in this way, maybe we don't complain enough. Why would I say that? Maybe, I'm just suggesting, we don't take God's promises seriously enough. If we did I think we would voice Abram's complaint we would voice the complaint of the Psalms it's okay God you promised help me God I'm you promised and I'm struggling and you see that's that's a complaint can I say this born out of belief in the promise that God clearly delights to answer maybe we're not Complaining enough. Well, we need to pay close attention here to the question that Abram asked in verse 8. He's not asking, how am I going to get this land? That's not the question, is it? He says, how am I going to know you're giving it and going to give it? How can I know? This is a different question. It is, I think, a theological question, not a practical question. God, how can I know you're going to, I'll, I'll rephrase it, how can I know for sure you'll do what you promise? See, that that's his question. And then what happens next is, woo, utterly foreign, genuinely gruesome. You know, if you're scratching your head, me too, what in the world just happened? Abram clearly knows what he's doing, right? I mean, just clearly goes to it. We don't have God we, we don't have God giving specific instructions, but Abram clearly was intent upon what he did, and it rested in and was rooted in this theological question of assurance. Assurance. How can I know for sure? Well, we're always thinking about when we're teaching, how do we how do we teach in such a way that you guys remember? You know, you grab it, and and of course, there's there's really no way I can bring a ram you know, rammed heifer up here and cut it in half, right? Yeah, I'm not, trust me. But in a way, in a silly way, I recognize this. I actually am because I actually do have a three year old ram, probably, maybe not three year old, but I, I have a ram up here that I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna you're going to see me do to this ram what, what Abram did to those animals. And I just want you in your mind's eye to consider, you guys see over here, I want you in your mind's eye to consider what was involved in what Abram did. Now, again, you know, I, I'm a deer hunter. I know we got hunters in the room. Curtis is in the room with me this morning. and And, you know, you kill a deer, it's a large animal, 150 pounds. And it's, it's gross, you know, clean this deer. Well, he's got three animals that Abram uh, splits in two, even as I'm going to split this, this ram in two. And as he did, I want you to think about what was happening to him and to the animal. Number one, uh, this animal is dead. <laughs> uh, that, yes, the guts are falling out of this animal as Abram Splits, splits it, getting to his head. Could you imagine that even as I'm just, you know, I'm using scissors on this toy ram, but what kind of implements he had to use to break through the skull? Crack the brain, it's all split this thing in half. As he goes through it, you know, he says it says that he had to, to beat off the, 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 the buzzards because when you, this type of work takes a while. We've got three animals he's doing this to. Hours, most of the day. Uh, I want you to remember that this climate is arid. It's very hot, which means bugs, uh, uh, bees, uh, as it happens with Abram. Buzzards are coming down on this animal. I assure you, his arms, his feet, his body were just covered in blood and he lays that animal in such a way, you know, that the legs are this way, and the blood and the guts are just exposed. He does the heifer, the ram, the goat. You can imagine he's working on the goat, and he's several yards at least right from the ram and the buzzards coming he's got to go and get the buzzards off this stuff and then he's got to go back and keep working on the goat and gets it all done until each animal split except the birds which are probably too small maybe to split so he sets them on each side but what you have is these split animals and a path if you will in the middle that's absolutely blood soaked it's it, stinks, it smells. It's gruesome. And it is death. This is death. Well, that's the preparation. And as the promise now comes in verses 12 through 16, the darkness descends. So let's read again verse 12, continuing. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs.' where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they, his descendants, will return here to this land, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Here is the promise. Abram, let me promise you something. Uh, your descendants are going to be in captivity, oppressed for 400 years. You're going to die at a good old age. After four generations, this is 100-year blocks for them in that day. Four gener- they're going to come back, and then this, this strange phrase in the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The, the, the iniquity of the Amorite. What is he speaking of? Well, the land that he, God is giving to Abram, we all know there are people living there. It, it's not theirs. Amorite entails all of them, all of those groups. You know, it's, 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 it's inclusive, of, inclusive of all. And in, in, in God's timing of redemptive history... when it says their iniquity is not yet full, there's a sense to which their wickedness has not reached the point where God moves from patience to judgment. They've got in God's kindness. Let's leave it this way. He's giving them time, but they will not repent. They don't repent. They just grow deeper in their wickedness. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Wickedness reaches a point. Boom, they're off. Think of the nation itself. The nation itself will go so wicked. What does God do to the nation of Israel? You're out of the land now, see? So there's a time in which this wickedness rises such that when Israel comes back 400 years later to move those people out of that land. We've got to think biblically. We've got to kind of put political correctness aside, our own thinking aside, and go, this is redemptive history. This is how God is working to bring Messiah to save all. Now, all whom he's called. So this is not manifest destiny. Have you ever read your Bible? I have read my Bible reading going, God, that's not very fair. I mean, those people lived in the land. Why do you you boot them out for your... You got to step back and go, this is not manifest destiny like United States coming in and moving off Native Americans. This is not that. This is redemptive history. God says their wickedness has reached a point they'll be judged. And how does he judge them? In his sovereignty by his own people to move them out of that land. Such that Derek Kidney writes it, I think so well, when Israel takes that land, it is, quote, an act of justice, not an act of aggression. Okay, so we've got to keep that in mind in this story of redemptive history. There is preparation. There is the promise. And then there is the assurance. And the lights go all the way out. Look at verses 17 to 21. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. And then he describes the scope and the the people in the land. These are the, quote, Amorites, all these groups in the land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Verse 18 explains this bloody mess. You know, so if we're wondering, what was that? On that day, God made a covenant with Abram. That's what that is. The Hebrew word uh, I don't know how to quite pronounce it, barret. I think is, it's literally God barret. God cut a covenant. That's the idea. God cut a covenant with Abram on that day. Now, when you think covenant, okay, it's actually this kind of comes the other way. But covenant is actually about binding. Okay, it's actually about it's about being bound. That's the idea of covenant and the. Probably the best idea that we have in our day is think contract. It's okay, you know. The start, let's start there. We'll build on it, but start with contract, a binding contract. I, you know, I'm gonna, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do all this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring this much money on this date, and I'm gonna buy your home for that. And sign the contract. And, and you, the, the, the seller, says, well, I'll take care of this. I'm going to do these things on this house. And on this date, uh, I'm going to sell you my home for this amount. And you sign the contract. You see that? We, 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 we've now, we have two equals, so to speak, have bound themselves by a contract to fulfill obligations. Now, this contract, it's, it would be called a, a bilateral contract because two equals engage and, and, and promise obligations. Everybody with me? A biblical covenant is a contract on steroids. It's above and beyond contract as we think of it. Number one, when God makes a covenant, when God covenants with a person, it's not bilateral, two equals. It's the greater God covenants with the lesser man. That's a fact. It's a unilateral covenant. And there's even more as we'll see as I explain this covenant that that was made a biblical covenant is weightier uh, the covenant that God makes with Abram I just want you to know this is very important the rest of the bible is a fulfillment of this covenant it's this covenant worked out it's not just Abram's great assurance that God's promises are trustworthy It's our greatest assurance that God's promises are trustworthy. Paul says in Galatians, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You know, some of us sang maybe in church, Father Abraham had many sons. And we sing that, and it's absolutely theologically, biblically correct, because if you've trusted Christ... You're Abram's descendant. And all all the promises are ours, you see, in in Abram. So the covenant cannot, I can't stress it's important enough. But how is this Abram's greatest assurance and how is it our greatest assurance? Well, we need to pay attention to what happened when this covenant was cut in the darkness. In those days when Two kings would enter a covenant, let's say. Hey, you know what? Let's, let's come together because, you know, I'm killing your people, you're killing my people. we come together and we could have a lot of land. We can have a lot of stuff. We can be very powerful. Let's covenant together. And so two clans, two tribes, two kingdoms would make a covenant. They would literally cut a covenant. What would they do? They would all come together. The leaders of those clans would take animals. Heifer, goat, ram. Cut them in half. I mean, Abram did, Abram's doing exactly what they did in that day. Cut them in half. And then the two leaders of those covenants, you see, of those clans, would come and the path of blood. And guts, they would walk together, two leaders walk together through that bloody mess, ratifying the covenant. This is like your signature. You ratify it. And in so doing, you are saying to each other, if I don't fulfill my obligation, if I don't fulfill my obligation, such should we be dead as that animal. If I don't keep my promise, then split me in half. Take my life. This is the binding nature of the covenant. So when Abram, when God cuts a covenant with Abram, notice verse 17. It came about when the sun had said it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. Smoking oven, flaming torch. God went between the pieces. Lloyd, how do you know that's God? Well, we we take our Bible study methods. We say, where does God show up in other places? How does he show himself? A smoke, smoke on Mount Sinai, the flaming bush, the pillar of fire. see, this is symbolic, a a, a picture of of God. God himself goes through that covenant, through those animals to cut the covenant. Now, what we got to pay attention to is, where was Abram? What was Abram doing when God ratified the covenant? He's asleep. He's asleep. This is an unconditional covenant in which only God passes through. What does that mean? It means God says, "Abram, do you want to know how sure this is that I will give you this land? How trust I will ratify this covenant on my name." Such should I be if I don't deliver this for you, the land, all my promises. I should be dead. God can never die. Exactly. Exactly. What did Abram bring to the ratification? Nothing. In other words, God invited Abram, follow this, to believe that God will fulfill this promise. Abram, can I say it this way? All Abram brought was trust. All Abram brought was to believe it. Which she sees pointing forward to what? To our own salvation. You think you can bring anything to be right with God? Can't. You think you could do anything once you've trusted Christ to be separated from him? You can't because God, you see, It says, I promise to bring you home on my name. Well, surely I got to do something. I got, no, you don't. This is grace. This is God's loving kindness. The promise, it gets even stronger in its statement, at least. Notice verse Eighteen. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given the land. Now, it's not bad English. Previous to this, God says, I will give, I will give. And now, having ratified the covenant, he says, I have given it. Wait a minute. No, he hasn't given it yet. God. Well, yes, he has. It's like this. The prom- God's promises are as certain as this next sentence I say is certain and sure. The Titans are going to use their second pick in the NFL draft to choose Marcus Mariota. Now what are you thinking? How, how sure is that? Seriously. I mean... Boy, they've already done it. They've already done it. It's a fact. Exactly. Exactly. How sure is God's promise? It's that sure. <laughs> As if it already is, you see. Which is why when we stand between reality and the promise, mm, the promise is, you see, the promise becomes our reality. It's that sure and certain. Well, There's the preparation, there's the promise, and now there's this assurance. This is the text. So what? So so let me offer a couple lessons if I can. There are so many. I mean, I had had a couple sheets full of these lessons that you can draw from this passage, but I'm going to hit just a few in our time remaining. Just just a few applications, if you will, that you can consider. First would be this. Uh, Let's not forget God wants us to be assured. I think it's important just to keep this in mind, that God does not want us to wonder, to to, to go, I'm not sure, he may, he may. No! Who initiates all of this? Who who initiates the conversations? Abram's not even thinking about the land, and God brings up the land to him. Because God wants to assure Abram. Y'all, we don't, God does not want us walking through life kind of doubtful, wondering, I mean, doubt's okay and all these things are okay, but no, God's heart is, I want you to know. Okay? That's his heart to us. Uh, Secondly, um, this one I don't like so much. As sure as the promise, so to the opposition. As sure as the promise so too the opposition to the promise. it ain't going to be easy. Listen, we're not going to make it out of this thing unscarred, unhurt, unbroken. It's fascinating to me that Abram says, how can I know for sure? And God's answer, point blank, Verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain, yes, yes, that your descendants will be oppressed, that they'll be slaves for 400 years. (laughs) I don't want, no, 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 that's not what I want to hear. I want to hear, how it's going to be so good. No, he says, you can know for certain that there will be opposition to the promise. But the promise is sure. I wish it wasn't like that. Don't you? And yet, would not most of us say that in the hardest times, in the darkest struggle, our faith grew the most. Our sense of God's presence deepened. Our hearts were transformed. As sure as the promise, so too the opposition. There's a third lesson, if you will. The fulfillment of the promise in his lifetime was not necessary for Abram to die in peace. Abram didn't get the land, people. And yet, God says to Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. The fulfillment of the promise was not necessary for Abram to die in peace. Listen, to to, to die in peace is to die knowing death's not the end. It's to die having known the prince of peace. Which a few chapters earlier, Abram got a little foretaste of with a strange man named Melchizedek, priest of the king of the city of peace. It's to die knowing that even in death, God keeps his promise. And this was Abram's experience, you all. Don't turn there, but in Hebrews uh, 11, uh, we get insight into something Abram saw that, that we, don't, we can't see that he sees it, but, but we're, I, I assure you he did, for the word of God says so. Hebrews 11, 9 says, By faith, Abram lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise for he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews goes on to say he was looking for a better country. Now, now please understand the land matters to the nation. But Abram Abram died in peace for his eyes were not necessarily, can I say this, they weren't on the land. They were on the better land that the land pointed toward. The heavenly place whose builder and architect is God. So he left this planet, you see, with his eyes on a better place. I think most of you know this and, and if you don't, you know, you wouldn't but because I haven't said it publicly but maybe on social media, etc. and others that, that know me. Uh, I buried my dad on Monday. And, uh, of course, I'm in this passage, you know, all, all the week before, and um, I'm with my dad as well. And uh, my dad, I, I can say this with great conviction, my dad died in peace at a good old age. He was 86. Uh, last July, uh, my sister, I'm the youngest of three, my sister, my brother, and I went to be with my dad in the hospital his kidneys were failing, and he wanted us to be there because he wanted to say to us, listen, I, I, you know, this is my dad's decision. He said, I don't want to do dialysis. I'm tired. And we said, Dad, it's your choice. That's fine. It's a gift to us. You, you make your decision. And he did, and that was last July, and he, he recovered somewhat. And so he was, you know, good days, bad days at that age. But um, just two weeks ago, he went in the hospital, and this is when they said, um, Mr. Shadrach, this is what we said would happen, and you're there. Dad, do you want to do di- I don't want to do dialysis. Okay, then you need to be under hospice care. He went under hospice care two weeks ago. I went down immediately. Just amazing conversations with my dad. Uh, nothing left unsaid between us. Siblings, my dad, all of those things. Uh, my, my, my dad passed away. I, I, this is amazing to me, but he literally passed away in my brother's arms. And my brother was holding my dad behind him, laying in bed, his back against the wall, my dad between his legs, and he was holding my dad. And He was whispering in my dad's ears the Lord's Prayer because my dad had really grown spiritually over the last year and a half. He's just praying in my dad's ear. My sister is in front of my dad holding his arms, just talking to him. My sister-in-law is holding the other arm, just speaking to my dad. And my dad breathed his last breath. My dad had very little in life. I'm telling you, he was a poor man, poor young man. But when he died, he had everything that mattered. How about that? He had everything that mattered. He knew Christ. I don't know if he could say it, but I truly believe that he had his eyes on the better land. And as it's been said, when he took his last breath, he took his first breath of that place. Now, I want you to know, you don't die in peace because you completed your bucket list. Nothing against that, but let me tell you something. Every bucket's got holes. It won't, you can complete your bucket list and die with nothing. But you die as Abram, believing the promise. And for you and I, believing the promise of Christ in the person. And you die in peace. The very last lesson I'll offer to us is it's only in the darkness of night that we can see what really matters most. I think the imagery here is not just literal. I think it's metaphoric in this sense that it's only when it's dark that we often see what we need to most clearly. And so I want to end by taking you on a walk. I'm going to take you to a pristinely dark place where just maybe you can see the promise more clearly. I'd like the lights to come down. You can fold your Bible up and just sit with me for a moment. And as these lights come down, totally down, you're sitting in this darkness. My invitation to you is to lift your eyes and to look up into a night sky. That is so full of stars, it almost looks white. And Abram looked into this night sky, even as we are now. But I want you to think about this Abram didn't know it fully. But if you have placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he did that for you, do you know Abram was looking at you when he looked up in that sky? That's you. We sit in this room some 3,000 years later because God kept his promise to Abram. And I want to ask you to close your eyes. Now you're in darkness. And maybe you're reminded of a place you're living right now that's dark, some dark spots in your world. I want to invite you to imagine in your mind's eye, looking in this darkness, I want you to see the smoking oven and the flaming torch pass through those animals. Whatever your dark place. The confidence you can have that God will bring you through is the confidence that God alone passed through. God took it upon himself to say, I will deliver. I will bring you home. I will bring you through. And then finally, in your mind's eye, eyes closed, would you imagine in your darkness the cross of Jesus Christ? There he is, bloodied and beaten. Quite frankly, his body split open. In other words, Jesus took the covenant curse upon himself. Abram would never be able to keep the covenant and neither would you and I. And so Jesus gave his life split open, took death in our place for all of us covenant breakers. Having been buried and raised again, our assurance that he will bring us home, that nothing separates us from his love is as sure as his resurrection. Today, God, deepen our conviction that your word is true and that you are trustworthy. Amen. Let's bring those lights up. I've gone a little long this morning, so I need to get you out of here. Let's stand together. I'll send you out with words from Paul. It relates very much to what we're talking about here. Paul could write to the Thessalonians, and I say to you, Faithful is he who calls you. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Amen. God bless